Welcome to this special Italian wine podcast broadcast. This episode is a recording off Clubhouse, the popular drop-in audio chat. This Clubhouse session was taken from the Wine Business Club and Italian Wine Club. Listen in as wine lovers and experts alike engage in some great conversation on a range of topics in wine. If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps cover equipment, production, and publication costs. And remember to subscribe and rate our show wherever you tune in. Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. This episode has been brought to you by the Wine to Wine Business Forum 2022. This year will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on November 7th and 8th of 2022 in Verona, Italy. This year will be an exclusively in-person edition. The main theme of the event will be all-round wine communication and tickets are on sale now. The first early bird discount will be available until August 22nd. For more more information, please visit us at winetowine.net. Okay. Hello, everyone. My name's Stevie Kim, and welcome to the Italian Wine Club on Clubhouse. We had a day with Professor Attilio Scienza. Actually, he, at his house, he lives in Torbole, right on the lake. So he's kind of like on vacation all year round. So we, had, we did a little bit of work with him, a bit of interview. Actually, yeah, so we did some Everybody Needs a Bit of Shins, uh, the questions from the VIA community, et cetera, et cetera. Like, so what, how many episodes have we done so far? It's been a while. We had a small hiatus during the summer, a uh, couple of weeks, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, so the one for today, it's going to be the 53rd episode. We oh, have. my goodness. Mm-hmm. Okay, exactly. excellent. Okay, and then who's coming up next, next week? Um, it's going to be Julie Farriker. She wants to do another clubhouse. So it's September 1. Julie Farriker will be interviewing Enzo Barbie from De, Can- De Cognanos. I don't know if oh, that's right. Okay, excellent. I actually went to see him recently when I was in Rogueta. Very good. And he, of course, always donates his wine for the Vinito International Academy. Um, I, I think... Jay. Hey, Jay. Ciao. Ciao, Stevie. How are you? I'm doing great. Yeah. Where, where are you? Whereabouts are you? Uh, I'm in San Diego. Oh, San Diego. Okay. So, like, I don't know if you recall, but we always have um, Mare Antico as kind of the benchmark wine for... Do you remember that? The De Cuniano? No, not really. I'm going to no, have to take back your yeah. pen for the Italian wine <laughs> ambassador. <laughs> okay so listen um uh, let me just uh ping joy hello joy joy are you here i am how's it going hi yeah you're right next door so there's a little bit of an echo did you want to say anything to um our audience today before we start the show no, um, just a, a great big thank you to everybody who voted for us in the uh, podcast awards. Cross your fingers. You never know. And if not, you won't hear about it again. <laughs> to the first, explain to them that we kind of the first um, batch of like 
I guess, the first round, right? Yeah, we did. We actually got into the uh, first stage or whatever you call it. So then the podcast awards uh, contacts, I think it's 10% of the people who actually voted and asks them to just make sure they're they're people and not, you know, bots or whatever. And uh, so we've had people contact us to tell us that that's happened. So that's great. But we're going against, you know, quite a few like large categories, which I yeah, didn't tell realize. Them, yeah, I was first... First of all, Joy, I was so excited when I first heard about it. And then, of course, our competition is... Can you tell them who the, our competition um, Amazon, is? Amazon, Apple, Overcast, Spotify. So. Yeah, so like we're in with these big dudes, <laughs> uh, Italian, Italian Wine Podcast against Apple and Amazon and Spotify. So I'm sure we have a very good chance of winning. But in any yeah, case, you know what? It's, it's, I, we made it to the first round. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, anyways, thank you all for supporting us. It's uh, It's been a great ride this year. The past 12 months alone, we had 2 million listens on the podcast. As you know, we record this here. Right? There are just a few of you. I know Clubhouse is not that cool anymore or popular, but it is an important to have great, great quality, I think, of recording. And then we replay it, of course, on the Italian Wine Podcast where we get huge, huge, huge listens, especially Ambassador's Corner, thanks to all of you. So thank you all for participating. Now, I would like, I'm going to start the show. And, you know, the whole concept of Ambassador's Corner, of course, is that from our um, VIA community, we ask one of our ambassadors, uh, Italian wine ambassadors, to choose their favorite Italian wine producer and kind of do the deep dive. That's why it's called the Ambassador's Corner. And today with us, we have J.D. Donato. Ciao, Jay. Ciao, Stevie. So, of course, Jay is, uh, he said he's from San, uh, San Diego. He's um, our Italian wine ambassador. But, Jay, you know, I was trying to look for you. I just got here, mind you. I didn't have very much time to prepare. But, like, I was trying to look for you on social media. Are you on social media? I know you were, like, in the Navy. I don't know if you're a spy. So you <laughs> can't have social media. What, what's up with that? No, I'm not a spy. Um, uh, I do have a top secret clearance, but not a spy. Uh, no, I'm on social media at JD Donato. Um, that's kind of my normal one. Then I've got like a wine Instagram called uh, Wine That I Liked. So yeah, I'm on Instagram. Okay, okay, great. Facebook. I was looking yeah. for you. I couldn't find you. I wanted to check yeah. out you. I'm going to do that during when uh, you take over. So Jay, of course, is, like I said, our Italian wine ambassador through the VIA program. He's WSET3. He's an Italian wine specialist. But where do you have your base? Are you in Chicago or in San, San Diego? Uh, right now, San Diego. Yeah, I was in Chicago for uh, about uh, four years, but I'm in San Diego now. And I've been in San Diego okay. for about a year. And what do you do? Uh, what do you do in um, San Diego now? Uh, so a full-time job. I'm a, a lawyer for the Navy. It's called being a, a, in the JAG Corps. I'm a prosecutor. Oh, uh, it's for, like the, this, like in the TV shows. Ex- exactly like the TV shows. <laughs> You should have told me before. Yeah. I, like I would have taken your autograph or something. Right. <laughs> uh, but also still, still in the wine industry, working at a, a wine bar and shop called Vino Carta um, in Little Italy, uh, the Little Italy part of San Diego. So uh, st- still kind of working in wine and working in Italian wine. Oh, that's fantastic. So Jay was, you know, for those of you who are unfamiliar, Jay D. Donato was commissioned as a, get this, surface welfare officer in the United States Navy in 2012. He was deployed into many areas and he 
and 2000, he's not only um, strong and brave and handsome, he's also uh, smart because he got his law degree from Loyola uh, University. Is that correct? Or it says here, Loyola University of Chicago School of Law. That's it, the law school, yeah. Uh, okay. So, and um, so, yeah, you're like super smart. And then you got the wine bug. When did you get the wine bug? I think I've had it uh, for a while, probably even before I joined the Navy, but definitely like traveling through Europe uh, with the Navy, through Italy and other parts of the Mediterranean, uh, definitely kind of spurred that on even more. Okay. So I love this. I love you like, you know, you're like the superhero and then wine as a hobby kind of guy. So tell us, Jay, why you've selected uh, Marco Zani as your favorite producer uh, to be on the call today. Uh, yeah, I wanted to choose somebody uh, who kind of makes wine from indigenous tra and traditional Italian varietals. And I, I definitely want to choose somebody whose wines, I felt at least, uh, had a sense of place. They kind of respected uh, respect for the environment and nature. Uh, and of course, we're, we're delicious. Um, and I think that there are a lot of young and, and new producers in Italy who are doing this. Uh, but I did find it kind of compelling that, that Marco, while I'm not calling him old, he isn't young either. And he's been making wine kind of in a traditional way. Uh, since the 90s. And of course, he's evolved uh, over time. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that as well. Okay, great. And so, and how did you discover uh, Marco? Yeah, it was just kind of chance uh, in a wine shop in Chicago, probably six years ago. Uh, oh, I you're kidding. His, yeah, fell in love with his wines um, then. And Serendipity. Kind of yep. Kind of been drinking them oh. ever since. And, yeah. That's so romantic. Yeah, and thankfully, a lot of the places that I've worked have, have carried them, and we carry them in, in the place on that now as well. So, fantastic. So, you know, you know, from the ambassador's corner, we always kind of try to advance what the learning objectives of this call is um, for today, and what are those today? What what can we expect to learn from your call with um, Mr. Zani today? Sure. So, learning objectives kind of focus where where he is in Trentino. Uh, specifically mm -hmm. the indigenous uh, traditional varieties there, how they're dealing with climate change, and then the broad range of wines that Trentino has to offer. And the lens that we're kind of looking at those issues through is Marco um, and his story and the story of Castel Navarna. Okay, excellent. So over to you, Marco. I'm going to, believe it or not, shut up, get grab a drink, and just enjoy the show. And then I will come back towards the um, end of the call. Okay, take it away. All right, great. Uh, thanks, Marco. I'm just going to give a, a, a quick introduction of you, and then we'll kind of get uh, started. So, Thank you. Uh, Marco lives in uh, Rovereto, a small town in Trentino. Since 1989, he's been making wines in a literal 11th century medieval count, uh, castle located on the hills above Rovereto. Uh, since 2007, he started converting to biodynamics and organic practices with the aim of finding a new way to express his varieties and terroir. So, Marco, that was kind of like a broad introduction, but kind of over to you. Can you talk a little bit more about your background and how you got started in wine? Hi, everybody. Uh, thank you for having me here. It's an honor and a pleasure. And, um, well, my background uh, is, is pretty complex. Yours is complex. Mine is complex, too. I'm, <laughs> um, I had a degree in computer science in 1985. Uh, um, I started uh, my own company in, in computer science, and uh, after a couple of years, uh, I uh, 
uh, I started to work uh, with my family business. My, my family business was hotel and restaurant. And uh, so I made uh, um, a sommelier course. I started to get into tasting wine and knowing wine and uh, exploring everything. And uh, my father bought uh, Castel Noirna in 1974. Um, his idea was to make a Rolle Chateau. It's a splendid location on, a, on the hills above Rovereto, 350 meters above the sea level, and uh, with uh, 13 hectares of property, of which six are uh, vineyards. And um, uh, so in 1988, uh, I made a challenge with a friend of mine. He was buying grapes and uh, making his own wine. And I said, come on, this guy... Uh, doesn't own uh, a meter, a square meter of vineyard, and he makes his own wine. And the old style, you know, we live in Trentino, which is a region famous in Italy for, uh, you know, winemaking. Every every garage, every old house had his own little winery. And, uh, and so he was making wine the old way, and uh, I went to visit him, and I said, uh, okay, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to try and make wine with uh, the grapes of Castello Arna. I had a couple of tanks uh, and a very rudimentary distemmer crusher and uh, a very small uh, wooden torch. And um, I made wine for the first time in 1988, uh, uh, not knowing anything about it. I didn't know absolutely anything. And um, a friend of mine, a guy that I knew, gave me some directions by phone. <laughs> and so that was my first experience. That's. Uh, a little bit, very, very shortly in my background, how I began making wine. Uh, of course, in 1989, the thing became official. I made an official winery. I reserved some space of the castle for winemaking. I bought uh, the, all the equipment, uh, and I started my adventure in winemaking at Castello Arna. That uh, very, very soon became uh, much more than a hobby or a challenge with a friend, because, of course, the reality was very interesting. And uh, those were uh, still, you know, years when uh, there were not so many wineries. And uh, uh, as soon as I started making wine, uh, the interest was very, very high. Uh, just uh, to let you know, in 1991, 1992, I already had my wines in the wine list in California. Madre Grazia uh, was, uh, you know, one of the first entrepreneurs and uh, uh, they discovered Italy and the, the, the minor locations, uh, discovered my wines, and he was enthusiastic. And he brought my Chardonnay and my Schiava and my Cabernet Merlot to the United States for the first time. And for me, it was like, you know, touching the, the sky with a finger because, of course, <laughs> I was starting from nowhere without any knowledge. And uh, uh, so it was, uh, I had uh, some very, very big boost and very positive stroke from this, and this uh, helped me go on. Thanks, Marco. Uh, yeah, I think that that's great. I love that a, a small bet or kind of challenge led you uh, on your path. But, you know, oftentimes uh, that kind of challenge challenges where uh, growth occurs. Uh, so I think that's great. But let's kind of talk then uh, a little bit about the estate itself. itself. Um, you know, I mentioned that it's in Trentino, and you talked about how it's in uh, Rovereto. But can you kind of speak more about it? Uh, specific location, uh, the vineyards, its microclimate, terroir, things like that? Sure. So, as I said before, Castellana is located in, uh, in, uh, in an area which is named Destra Adige. 
it means the right side of the river Adige. The Adige River is the second longest river in Italy, and it goes through the valley from Bolzano to Verona and then on to the Mediterranean. Um, so on the right side of the river Adige means facing east-southeast. Our vineyard is located uh, 350 meters above the sea level, facing east-southeast on the right side of the river Adige. The, um, so that means that we get the first uh, sun in the morning, the, in the coolest days, uh, hours of the day, and uh, we get one or two hours of sun less in the afternoon when it is very warm. And this is a very, very interesting location, for, especially for making wine with a nice acidity and nice freshness. Um, the soil is, um, is a silt, and uh, we have about 15 to 20% of uh, clay and um, of clay, and uh, a lot of rocks. So there's a, it's a very draining soil, as, everywhere, as, as usually in, in the hills. So it can rain for one week, and uh, the next day you can go into the vineyard with your boots and not having anything attached to your soles. So uh, that's, a, that's very, very interesting. Um, the, the, we are very lucky because the, the vineyard is all around the castle, is only in one location. It's like a, a crew on the hills above Rovereto. Uh, we don't have one vineyard in one location or one vineyard in another location. It's all around the castle. There's this medieval castle that sits atop on, of, a, of a little you know, hill, and, and all around the castle we have the, 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 the vineyards. Great, Th thank you. Yeah, that's uh, that, that's very interesting. Kind of where your location is, um, and you kind of talked about uh, Mark de Grazzi. And uh, when we spoke in the past, uh, you kind of mentioned both him, and you mentioned several of your other formative experiences uh, in your winemaking journey, like uh, when you visited uh, Jim Clendenin. Uh, can you kind of talk about that experience and any kind of other uh, experiences? Um, that inspired you and your evolution as a winemaker? Sure. Uh, as I told you, I didn't have any background in winemaking, so, but I'm a guy that really go, likes to go deep into his passions. And um, so when I started making wine, I really wanted to know everything about it. So it began a seven days a week uh, journey into winemaking. And uh, I started traveling all over Europe and also to the States. I met um, Jim at the 1980, 1990 uh, in Italy. Uh, he was like a rock star with long blonde hair, uh, crocodile boots. Uh, and uh, he was just, uh, you know, an amazing guy, just a shocking guy to see. So, so nice. And um, I told him, listen, I want to go. I'm coming to the States uh, next summer. And uh, he told me, come and visit me, and uh, so we'll, we'll have a good time. So I, that's what I did. I, I flew to Los Angeles. Um, I, went to, I rented a car. I went to Santa Barbara. And, uh, and I spent there uh, two or three days with Jim, uh, and I discovered his, uh, uh, his experience and his location. And we had uh, an amazing great time. We went tasting super fantastic wines together. And uh, I really, uh, that's how it started. But then, uh, uh, till uh, the last time I saw Jim was about five or six years ago. Uh, we kept on in contact uh, all the time about winemaking. Every time he came to Italy, in the first years, he was always coming to the Vinitali too. And uh, he was staying in my hotel. He was staying uh, with me. 
and we would go to the winery, taste together, and he was giving some hints, a point of view completely different, because, uh, you know, sometimes what happens uh, in, uh, in uh, certain areas like Trentino, the mentality can be a little bit closed, a little bit uh, uh, too much tied to the tradition. Instead, for me, coming from the outside, I didn't have any, any preclusion. I didn't have any, any old idea somehow. I was uh, trying to experiment uh, uh, all the time. And that's, and that's uh, where also, of course, uh, the, the hints that uh, Jim was giving me uh, were very helpful. So besides Jim, that remained a, a constant, uh, a constant uh, friend uh, and um, uh, in my experience, uh, the other experience that I remember very, very interesting for me when I went to visit uh, Heimann Löwenstein in the Mosel, and uh, I discovered these uh, wines made with cold maceration. Uh, I don't know, I mean, maybe Heimann Löwenstein was harvesting and leaving the, the grapes, uh, the stem crush, to macerate uh, the cold in his uh, yard before crushing them. And he was starting the fermentation spontaneously. Uh, leaving uh, the wine go his own way. And uh, I went there in March the first time, and there was this uh, uh, Riesling that was still bubbling, still fermenting, and, uh, and the wine was amazing. The wine were uh, fantastic. And that, you know, oh, is one of those turning, turning points when you understand that uh, you don't have to uh, follow only one way or there's only one way to do things. So first... Uh, uh, with Jim, like fermenting in the barrels uh, from the start, uh, and um, because uh, the, the early '90s were the years when we started to use barrels in Trentino, um, and that were not common. Barrique were not uh, used in Trentino, so the people were scared about the barrel, and they would put the wine in the barrel once fermented, uh, when it was already uh, like in in March or in April. And that was very bad for the wine because the wine uh, it didn't get well along with the barrel if you put it in the barrel too late. And uh, and so uh, with Jim and with other people, I experimented to put the the must in the barrel from start and let it go all the fermentation and doing malolactic fermentation. Another thing that uh, was uh, was not common is doing malolactic fermentation in Trentino was kind of prohibited. Which is kind of strange because it's a region that once, when I began making wine, was the wine the must were very acidic, very acid, and the malolactic fermentation was absolutely very, very, uh, very important and very interesting on Chardonnay. Uh, so, um, and Heimann Levenstein was a turning point about uh, freedom of not using selected yeast uh, or not using the SO2 uh, on the grapes uh, and. Uh, um, and fermentation that are not necessarily going to end in a week, and the wine is very interesting, and the vintages not being all the same also. You know, you taste the wines uh, very, very specific to the vintage uh, of, the, of that vintage. Then in 2007, it came uh, the other very important turning point uh, uh, when I had a wine tasting of uh, champagne, uh, biodynamic champagne from France, and um, it was a very interesting taste for me, uh, wine tasting for me, because I, I really uh, felt that there was something um, special in these wines, something uh, that went beyond the, the technique or beyond the, the 
the winemaking process. It was related to most probably the, the, how the grapes were grown uh, or the environment where these grapes were grown. And, uh, and so all of a sudden, after this uh, uh, wine tasting, I decided to uh, convert all the, my winery and my vineyard to biodynamic. So I called uh, Jacques Mel. Uh, uh, I'm friend with Elisabetta Foradori. Elisabetta Foradori started uh, biodynamic, I think, in 2005, and she started with uh, uh, the, this consultant uh, that is called Jacques Mel. He's a French guy, and uh, I asked him to to help me to convert my vineyard to biodynamic. And he very kindly accepted. And uh, for a few years, he came and he helped me to, uh, you know, slowly, very slowly and very carefully without uh, very dramatic or drastic intervention to convert my vineyard to biodynamic. And I must say that in these uh, now 30 years, 33, 34 years of my experience in the vineyard, uh, surely biodynamic uh, was the most. the dramatic uh, um, experience that I had. Thanks for that, Marco. That was a, that was a lot there. Um, I really liked how you talked about kind of the the tension and the interplay uh, there in your uh, experience between kind of remaining true to some of the traditions, uh, but also remaining open to new ideas from Champagne, from um, Santa Barbara, from kind of uh, all, all over. And uh, me being in San Diego, I've been able to get up to Santa Barbara uh, quite a few times. Uh, that's where my fiance and I are getting married in um, in about a month and a half or so. And we've been able to go to Alban Climat. Uh, and uh, yeah, we, we love his wines and uh, kind of that sense of place and in keeping with that low intervention uh, style that, that you've talked about. Um, but kind of talking still about uh, kind of attention or, or interplay. Uh, sometimes we talk about indigenous, or in Italy we, we use the word uh, autochthonous Italian varietals, uh, versus some of those international varietals like Chardonnay, Merlot, etc. Um, but the distinction between those two, those two like hard categories, uh, is not always so clear in parts of Italy, like Trentino, uh, where you have some international varieties that you know, have a long tradition there. So in, in kind of your experience and your wines, can you talk about uh, the wines that you make uh, in general and both the importance of your autochthonous Italian varietals and some of the international varietals that, that you work with? Yes. So, um, of course, Trentino is a region that started to work with international varieties very, very many years ago. Uh, we think that the introduction of uh, Merlot and Cabernet and Chardonnay uh, goes back uh, to the end of the 19th century, so like 130, 140 years ago. Um, Just to give you an idea, as as an idea of folklore, uh, the people here, when they used to, the the contadini, the farmers, when they make their own wine at home, used to be a mix of Merlot and Schiava. That was the most typical uh, blend. Both very productive uh, varieties, um, very generous. Schiava uh, gives the acidity and the, the, the strawberry and the fruit and the fruit. And of course, Merlot gives more alcohol because it's very generous and uh, used to be a perfect combination. So just to give you an idea, in the 60s or the 70s or 
when I started making wine, the home wine, the homemade wine was mainly red because of white wine was very, very seldom in Trentino. We were maybe, I think, about 80 to 90% red grapes producers still in the mid-80s or the mid-70s when the first Chardonnay was bottled in Trentino. And, uh, and so, because the, the history of Trentino is that we were the, the tank of wine to the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, Trentino was uh, uh, under the Austro-Hungarian Empire domination till 1918. And that was a very, very florid uh, period for Trentino because we were producing for that was what was then the biggest empire in, in, the, in the world, uh, so, uh, in, or at least in Europe, the biggest market in Europe. So we were producing uh, uh, grapes, wine, we were producing tobacco, we were producing beer to export in uh, Austria, Hungary, uh, and all the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire. Very, very rich uh, time, and it, you, can, you can see that because many towns in Trentino had uh, the architecture, uh, the, the, the biggest palace, the biggest houses, the most the nicest with the best stucco and uh, of the family, the most important family were updated into that period. Are you enjoying this podcast? Don't forget to visit our YouTube channel, Mama Jumbo Shrimp, for fascinating videos covering Stevie Kim and her travels across Italy and beyond, meeting winemakers, eating local foods, and taking in the scenery. Now, back to the show. So, uh, we had to make red wine because uh, white wine was made in Austria, was made in uh, Hungary, was made in maybe in Germany. You know, it could it could have been maybe many areas, but we are, had a more temperate climate that allowed the production of red wines. Mm. <laughs> Becoming Italy after 1918, uh, I mean, of course, we had a crisis in the 20s, the 30s, and uh, and then after the boom of the 60s. Uh, uh, the, 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 the wine in Italy at the Renaissance, especially uh, in, in the mid-70s and after the uh, methanol scandal in the, at the beginning of the 80s. And in the Renaissance of the Italian wine, the Trentino region, of course, uh, being in the north and having a more temperate climate, uh, has retailed uh, a space into gra- white grapes production. Because, of course, we have uh, Sicily, uh, Sardinia, we have uh, Apulia, we have Tuscany, we have uh, Umbria, uh, we have Le Marche, um, we have L'Emilia Romagna, or Piedmont, of course. They all have a warmer climate that is suited uh, um, better for uh, red grapes. And therefore, Trentino went through a very, very drastic uh, transformation. I don't know the numbers now, but surely uh, we make a lot more white grapes than red grapes. And um, nevertheless, the, the red grapes, the, the red wines in Trentino are, are interesting, especially, you know, uh, the, the Schiava and the Merlot are varieties that come very well. Then we have uh, uh, autochthonous varieties, which are traditional, uh, and uh, those are mainly Marzemino in my region, Lagrain, and the Teroldigo. Um, 
of these uh, red varieties, the only one that we make in Castelnuarna is a Lagrine. And uh, with the Lagrine, we make uh, uh, one rosé and one red uh, uh, air and the red wine. It's not a reserva, it's a wine that uh, is thought to be drunk uh, um, into the four or five years uh, of his age. And, um, and very crispy and, and fruit. Uh, and I think that uh, uh, we have a lot to say with autochthonous varieties, uh, uh, red varieties in Trentino. Even though, as I told you, in Italy, uh, if you want to, so the, the, the main interest in Trentino is with the white grapes. Um, I don't know, you, uh, do you have yeah. any questions? Yeah, I, I, I think that that is uh, such an interesting part about uh, Italian wine kind of history there, where uh, when you're part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, you're the warmest part of Austria-Hungary, so you're making red wine. And then I, I love that phrase that you said, becoming Italy in uh, 1918. Now you're the coldest part of Italy, so now you focus on on white wine. So that's a that's exactly. such an interesting uh, uh, interplay there between the, the history of, of your of Italy and, and specifically your region. Uh, but you kind of touch on some of the wines that you make, and you do make a whole uh, a variety. So we don't need to go into to all of them. Uh, and this may be an unfair uh, question because I'm sure you love all of your wines, but uh, of the ones you make, what kind of wine or what, what variety uh, do you kind of love working with the most, um, the most exciting to you? Well, I surely must say the Noziola. Uh, Noziola is uh, the only white uh, autochthonous variety that we have in Trentino. And um, I, had, I was very lucky that my father planted some Noziola in 1974 or 75 when he bought the castle. I don't even know why. I never asked him. My father, unfortunately, is not here anymore. Um, but uh, I don't know why he planted Noziola in Castelnuarna. When he bought the castle, the castle was all planted with Schiava. So my father was producing maybe 95, 98% of the production was Schiava. And then he started in, a, in the 70s to convert uh, the, the vineyard to uh, new varieties that were more on um, vogue at the moment. So, of course, Chardonnay, of which we will talk later. And then he planted some Sauvignon Blanc and he planted some Noziola. When I started making wine, uh, I, I was, you know, I found myself with this grape that nobody knew, and uh, not, not nobody knew, but was very. Um, nobody, nobody liked Noziola. So I, I was talking to the, the farmers that were working the, the vineyard, to the local people of the villages around the, the castle, and they say, "We, are, I have Noziola. I want to make wine of Noziola." And they say, oh, come on, give it up. Don't, don't even try. Noziola is bad. It, it's, not a, it's, not a, it's not interesting. Uh, it's a wine that doesn't last. It will, uh, in September, it will be already gone. It's not even worth trying. And of course, you know, I'm one of those guys that uh, likes to go a little bit against uh, the, the current. Yeah, you're and, a little uh, thick-headed. I, I just said, uh, okay, but not, uh, let's not give things for granted. Let's try. And so in 1990, I made my first Noziola, and uh, it was interesting. Uh, I didn't understand Noziola at first, because uh, one of the characteristics of Noziola is that it ripens late, very late. Uh, if you take Chardonnay as a, as a, 
as a paragon. Uh, Noziola needs uh, 10 to 15 days more. Uh, it can be harvested with, uh, with the red wines easily, uh, surely with Merlot and Lagrine. And, uh, but I didn't know that because you know, they, they, they used to just harvest and bring it to the local co-op. Uh, I have to say, maybe I didn't say it, but I gave it for granted. We were selling all the grapes to the local co-op before I started making wine. And so, you know, it was like a big tank. You harvest, you bring it down, you get your money, uh, and that's it. You don't care too much about uh, maybe quality. or I didn't know. I didn't, I didn't handle the situation at the time. When I, when I started to, to handle, the, to, to, to get a hold of the winery and the, the vineyard, I started to think and to understand. But of course, it's not, a, it's not very, uh, it's not so evident. So I'm sure that in the mid-1919, I harvested Nuziola too early. And uh, so the wine was good, but it was not that great because uh, Nuziola is, is a little bit wild. Uh, and I, I, as I told you, I didn't understand it very well. Then in 1991, it happened a very, very, a very uh, curious uh, episode that I want to tell you because it's kind of weird and, and funny. Uh, 1991 was a very rainy year. 1990 was very dry. Maybe the first very dry year that resembles a little bit uh, this 2022. Not so dramatic, but was very dry and sunny. I remember yellow, yellow grass in the vineyard. Uh, 1991, by, by the contrary, was very rainy. It rained all summer, it rained during the, the, the harvest, and uh, we were kind of, and me, with my little experience, I was very worried, you know. I see some, uh, some mold, uh, some botrytis, uh, some, some, some of these problems. So the, the, the grapes are not uh, super nice and yellow and perfect. And I was worried. I didn't know that it's not necessary that the grapes are super perfect to make a good wine. And uh, sometimes, if the grapes are not too, are too perfect, the wines are not so interesting. But that's, uh, that's another story. So I didn't know. I harvested Nuziola. And uh, I was so unhappy about uh, the status of the grapes on the vineyard that I, that I told my, the guy who was working in, in, the, in the vineyard, Okay, his name was Lorenzo. He was a young guy, younger than me at the time. And I was 20, I was 30, 30 years old. And I told him, listen, Lorenzo, nothing is going to come from this Nuziola. Maybe they were right, you know. Let's cut it out. So let's cut the, the vines. And uh, so the, the, the guy, was, it was October, the, the Nuziola had finished fermentation. And um, the guy started to cut the head of the... Of the, the, the the pergola, Noziola was in pergola at the time. And uh, I'm, I'm, as soon as the fermentation uh, finished, I went to the winery and I, start, and I tasted the wine. And the wine was fantastic. This Noziola was the best white wine I had in the winery. I said, no, Lorenzo, stop, stop, stop. If, can you imagine? In a, if in a bad vintage like this, Noziola tastes uh, so good, can you imagine if we can understand uh, what we can do once we understand really how to get the best out of it? And so that's uh, the story of my, my first Noziola. Uh, but the big turning point in Noziola uh, was when I understood after uh, going biodynamic, uh, because 
the story is this. In 2007, I start uh, this path, you know, to natural uh, fermentation and to natural wines and whatever you want to call it. I don't know. I don't, natural wine doesn't mean anything. But anyway, uh, I start this path, especially in the vineyard, because I, I see we have to work a lot. It's not a, one, a thing that happens in one year. It takes three to five years to convert a vineyard to organic or biodynamic and to see the first results. So I started to I was I started to think uh, what can I do in the vin in the winery to make wine in a way in my personal way with my own personal style without following necessarily uh, the trend of uh, long maceration or you know orange wine or uh, uh, you know, I, I had been visiting, of course, all the wineries in Friuli, all the wines in Tuscany, all the wines that, uh, that they were starting to make in uh, to make wine with uh, six months on the on the on the skins or with amphora or whatever. But you know, I'm I'm kind of guy that likes to find his own way, and so I was wondering, and uh, I, uh, I I decided to uh, refer my, my winemaking in Nosiola to uh, the old style of making white wine in Trentino. I told you before that uh, seldom times white wines were made in, in, the, in the cellar of the, the people in, it, in Trentino, not the, not the big cellar, but I mean at home. Because making white wine is difficult. You have to have a, a press, you have to press the, 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 the skins uh, before fermentation, and uh, you, know, you need a technique that was not available in the house. And, uh, and uh, what were they doing to make white wine? They would the stem crush the grapes, let them put them in a tank, uh, start the fermentation, and when the hat, so the, the, the pack of the, of the skins um, rises due to the CO2 that fer fermenting brings the, the skins on the top, they, uh, they rack, they take out the juice, they press gently the, the grapes, with the remaining thing, maybe they make a second wine. They used to make a second wine, putting some water and some sugar on the skins and making a wine for a normal occasion and keeping the good juice for um, the special occasion. And, uh, and so basically they were making a wine with a short fermentation on the skins. That is called in Italian, in, per alzata di cappello. That means vinification by rays of the hat, that hat, meaning that the hat is the type of the skins. And uh, I, I remember that because the, the, the guy, the old guy that was working in the vineyard, uh, the, only the first year that I, I, I started to run Castello Arna, uh, was very impressed by the fact that we were, the, the way we were making white wine in the castle. And he, and he said, oh, come on, it's a waste of time. Why do you, why do you press the grapes right away? You know, it's a big work. You just put it in the tank, let it ferment. And because he used to make a, a wine, white wine at home with this technique. So I say, let's start the Ferruccio way. Uh, Ferruccio was the name of the guy, of the old guy that used to work at the castle. And so in 2009, I started to ferment the Nosiola on the skins for about a week. Um, four, five days, six days, it depends from, from year to year. And that gave Mosiola an amazing boost because 
I then discovered that, um, so I tried this technique with Chardonnay. I, f I also produce Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, and so on. I used, I used to use, I used to produce Riesling, and I, st I tried this technique with all the varieties, but um, I kept it only on Noziola. And then I discovered why the Noziola made with this technique was so superior. Because uh, the, the researchers of the Instituto Agrario San Michele, the school of enology that we have in Trentino, that is uh, one of the most famous, it was once directed by, by Dr. Scienza, and he was one of the founders of this school. Uh, the researchers discovered that uh, uh, in the skin of Denoziola, uh, uh, there are some precursors of aromatic development of the wine. Basically, if you ferment on the skins, you have a noziola that has a character, not only the structure in the mouth, not only you know the 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 the, the feeling of uh, a little of fuller white wine, but also the character of the noziola is radically different. It can develop certain aromatic uh, uh, characters that uh, are uh, implicit in the um, in the skins, and so this was a, a, a big satisfaction for me because. Uh, we started to have uh, noziolas that so we first of all we I, we discovered that we have to forget noziola on the vineyard and to harvest it only when it's falling is falling on the ground. I mean we have to keep to 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 resist the the, the urge to harvest that, uh, uh, that normally starts when you, when, the, when the harvest starts and to wait till uh, the last moment and then. Uh, this time it crash, put it in a tank, let the fermentation start. Of course, no SO2, no yeast, uh, nothing. And to bottle it without filtration because uh, you let it uh, clear naturally in the winery during the winter. And then you bottle it without filtration. And what does it mean? It means that the wine is still alive and it can develop uh, uh, freely in the bottle. So... Uh, and Mark, I can I can attest to your noziola with such great structure and intensity. Really, just a, a kind of an amazing an amazing wine. And I, I love that story. I can picture you running through a massive castle to try to stop uh, cutting and try to save your your noziola. Uh, I I don't know if you were a football player in your youth, uh, trying to uh, recapture that and uh, sprint sprint out to your vineyards. I was a baseball player in my youth. You were a baseball weird. player. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Weird. Yeah, Weird, very. But... Um, but kind of talking about your your noziola, if anybody's had it, the, the label is beautiful and the label on kind of all of your wines are really beautiful. Uh, and uh, I'm being a little bit coy about who the artist is, but can you kind of talk about the artist uh, of your labels and the, and the process uh, she goes through in creating them? Yes. Thank you, Jay. I'm very pleased by that. Yeah. The, art, the artist actually is my wife. My wife uh, is Susanna Briata. Uh, you can find her on uh, Instagram. And uh, she, she, she was born in Africa. She was born in Somalia. She was raised uh, in Somalia. And her father uh, was an artist. Uh, her brother is an artist. And uh, she paints and does a different type of uh, art. And uh, so when we got married in '94, uh, she started to make uh, uh, little drawings uh, uh, that are like um, um, for for my labels. 
and I decided to adopt uh, some of her works for the label. And um, I see that uh, you know they're, they're very colorful and they are, and uh, I really like uh, her work. So um, it's a, it's a nice combination, uh, like a family family business uh, on on all the on all the aspects. And I'll definitely need to uh, to get some of her work. I know she she sells it, and I know it uh, kind of also adorns uh, the 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 last kind of thing that you have going on in Castel Norna. You're you're a full uh, full spectrum hospitality. It, it, you also have a, a hotel, right? And and some of her work kind of adorns uh, some of the rooms uh, in the hotel. Yes, the hotel is uh, about six, six kilometers from the castle, and uh, it's called Hotel Rovereto, like the, the name of the of the town where I live. And um, me and my family run also the hotel, and, uh, and so that's a good combination because in the in the in the restaurant we also serve our wines. Not only we have uh, 120 wines in our wine list, and so we try to represent uh, Trentino. Uh, wines and uh, and also northern Italian wines mainly mainly <clears throat> but of course we serve our wines um, I wanted to say uh, just another word about uh, my wines and the wines that I prefer is uh, of course in the last after, after this wine tasting that I made uh, of champagne I decided to start to make also Trento Doc which is the local name for champagne in Trentino and uh, that's another wine that gave me really um, a big satisfaction. Uh, Chardonnay, of course, is an international grape variety. Uh, Chardonnay is not local. It has been here for 130 years. It was brought in Trentino by Giulio Ferrari to make Despermante at the end of the 1800s. But I think that uh, the Trentino region as I, um, is very, very vocated, very, uh, very well suited to these grapes because... Uh, um, of course, years like these are, are very, very stressful because we had uh, like 35 days uh, or 40 days over 35 degrees in the vineyard. And that's, uh, that's a big problem. Nevertheless, we harvested last week. We have to harvest a little bit uh, earlier. We usually harvest uh, at the end of August. Uh, but uh, I think that uh, our climate uh, or our area um, allows us uh, to have a certain... Um, character in Chardonnay, which is very, very interesting. And uh, the soil of Castelnoana is a thing that I want to mention a little bit. We have the, the, the I forgot to say before, we have uh, schist, basalt, and porphyr in combination with this silt base. And uh, the spice that you see, that you feel in, uh, and you can taste, you can smell in Castelnoana's wines, surely is a combination also of uh, these interesting elements that are in the soil of the wines of Castano Arma. Yeah, there is such varied kind of uh, expressions and you can definitely taste a lot of your uh, terroir. It's such a great uh, vehicle for that. I guess my last question uh, for you, Marco, you, you mentioned that you have a restaurant. So if, if anybody's lucky enough to get to see you and, and get to your restaurant, uh, what's kind of one of your favorite pairings, a dish in your restaurant and uh, with one of your wines? Well, you see, my uh, um, this goes to another wine that we didn't talk about it uh, till now, but uh, that is actually the wine that I sell more, more the most in the states, and it's called the Mercuria. 
there's a little uh, um, episode, little, there's a very important episode, the most important episode in the history of the castle, very shortly, is this. In the 1700s, more than 20 women were accused of being witches and were imprisoned in Castelnoarna. And at the end of a trial that lasted one year, five of these women were beheaded and burned on a hill close to the castle. One of the women that survived, her name was Mercuria, like Mercury, the, the female. And um, in 1990, I decided to give one of these, to dedicate one of these wines that I make to this witch. And um, it's a blend of uh, Cabernet and, and Merlot. And this wine is very, very interesting with meat. Uh, the guys from Section Massal, Guillaume Gerard, uh, always defined uh, my Mercuria steak wine. It is a steak wine for sure, but it's also very good with one of the most interesting uh, um, uh, recipes of northern Italy that is very, very common from Veneto to Piedmont, and that is the bollito misto. So uh, my father was originally from Mantova, and he brought in Trentino what was a, a thing that was completely unknown at the time, and is the carrello dei bolliti, the, troil, the trolley with boiled meat. There are seven or eight types of boiled meat on this trolley. We go from sausage to veal head to tongue to, um, to beef uh, to um, pork uh, and so on. There are many, many types of beef. We come into, uh, to the table and we serve the, the boiled meat. You can, especially famous in Verona, when you are in Verona for the Vinitoli, you can't miss the bollito misto. But it's a, a big tradition for my restaurant too. We've, we've done the bolito misto since the 60s, and I must say that Mercuria for the bolito misto is uh, special. Marco, that, that, that sounds amazing. It's only uh, 10 a.m. here in uh, Santiago, but uh, you're making my mouth water. I want to go try that uh, right now with your uh, Mercuria. Uh, and that's such a great story, and we could talk kind of for hours because all of your, your labels and wines uh, have these amazing stories behind them, and that's one of the the reasons why I kind of chose you as one of my favorite producers, because there's just such uh, depth there uh, and just you can keep going back and learning new things about Castle Noirna and your wines. But uh, we're kind of get, getting close uh, to the end here. So that's all I've got for this conversation. I hope to have many more with you in the future, Marco, but uh, kind of back over to you, Stevie, uh, to wrap up. Hello, can you guys hear me? Yeah, we can hear you, Stevie. Yes. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for that. I usually do uh, this. Hold on one second. That's as far as I go in terms of special effects. I hope you appreciated my... my... Nobody's at the office now, so <laughs> this is the best I can do. Thank you so much, Jay and Marco. Just one quick question here. Marco, um, how do you get to your uh, estate? Like, If you're on the autostrada, what, what is the exit? Is it Rovereto? The exit is Rovereto Nord. It's only oh, three kilometers from Rovereto Nord. If you come uh, from Verona, you will see it uh, on the left, on, on the middle of the, of the mountain. Uh, it's, a, it's a castle. It's, it's not a Disney castle. It's just a, like a big house. But when you see it from the south, you can see also the, the, the walls, the ancient the medieval walls. And uh, you exit Rovereto Nord, and it's only three kilometers from there. So um, I think we saw it on, on our way because we went to Torbole today because Shinza yeah, lives love, in Torbole. I love Torbole. I live 
16 kilometers from Torbole, I, I, I've been to um, Mr. Sh- Dr. Shenza house once, and he lives in a paradise. Is one of the most beautiful places in the world. I, yeah, so I, he made actually pasta, four types of pasta for us today. Wow. And we recorded that. Listen, uh, Marco, I see on the website, I'm here at, in, on your website, and there you have nine labels, right? Yes, Is that many, correct? Many, okay. Many. So how, how, can you give me a little bit of an idea in terms of the uh, volume, like production number of bottles that you produce, just to get a sense of how the, many you are? So we have about six hectares of vineyard, and the total production is about 30,000 bottles. But oh, okay. uh, we are... I'm working on reducing the number of of, of, uh, of wines now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the future is going to be um, the Trento Doc, uh, a Reserva. Trento, the Trento Doc is called the Blanc de Blanc. is a is a, dosa, a dosaggio zero, so dosaggio mm-hmm. zero. Uh, and then uh, I have a Reserva that's uh, seventy two months on the on the lease. That is called the Dos Agu. Dos Agu means uh, uh, sharp edged mountain. And uh, is uh, is the name of the place where we make the the reserva grapes, and um, then we make the noziola, of course. So the, the spumante is the the, the eight to ten thousand bottles a year, mm-hmm. and then we make about three thousand bottles of noziola, and then we're gonna keep, of course, uh, the mercuria, and uh, and one in the lagrine. So basically, we're gonna we're gonna concentrate on the the trento doc, the noziola. And uh, two reds, because um, so in totally uh, in total we make uh, about thirty thousand bottles. Okay, okay, that's uh, that's good to know. So I can kind of try to contextualize um, how big you are. Well, thank one, you very much. I look... one, can I say one only one thing? Sure. If you, if you find an old bottle of Nuziola, like 10, 15, 20 years old of Nuziola, the not only Castellana, of course I'm, I talk about mine, but it's generally speaking, I want to say to the to the people that Noziola is a wine that ages spectacularly well. So open the bottle and enjoy it because you're going to be really surprised. Keep in mind that Noziola, generally speaking, has less than 12% alcohol. So do you, I mean, is Noziola kind of your, um, if you were to pick, I know I know what Jay asked kind of a similar question, but um, what what would you consider your signature wine? Surely the surely the Noziola. Noziola, and now in this because I make it, we making for thirty two years, and um, but it's such a small quantity. I know, right? and therefore uh, the, the 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 Trento Doc, the Blanc de Blanc, now is really um, very important for me. Right, it kind of puts you on the map. I I, I do appreciate Noziola a lot. I do. I have a um, I have a house actually. I never go because. Um, um, I do have a house at Andalo, which is right above. Um, so come and come and see me. Yes, yeah, so, well, I never go. That's the problem. <laughs> but um, so I, it's right above, of course, Foradori. Yes. And um, so I have lots of her wines, and uh, I do agree. Noziola, once in a while, I have like very, very old bottles. Mm-hmm. And when you first open it, this is what I've noticed, and maybe that can that could be something you can confirm or um, or not. Um, when you first open it, it's almost, it's less, um, aromatic and less, less of everything. But the day after, mm-hmm. I feel like if you keep the bottle the day after it even opens up a lot more. So it's not easy to uh, talk generally about yeah. Noziola. One problem that we have with Noziola is that maybe 
10 producers make a nice noziola in Trentino, mm-hmm. everyone makes it in a different way. Uh, so I make it uh, on, the, on the skins, uh, noziola, Elisabetta Foradori makes it in Afora. The other guy uh, dries a little bit of grapes and then uh, puts them in uh, uh, after the, the, with the fermentation. Um, so there's no two noziolas alike. <laughs> Therefore, you have to taste them and find out which is the, the noziola for you. The, the, the fact that you said it can be related to the fact that noziola sometimes is a, be, is a bit of a reductive uh, wine. Mm-hmm. And, it, and, um, and therefore, if the vintage of that specific wine um, was a little bit reduct, re, reductive, so mm-hmm. in lack of oxygen, of course, when you open it, uh, you will, the, this redu- reduction will cover the, the aromas and the, and, the, and the nose. It's like when we used to say, oh, you have to rack a bottle into the, uh, into the Ampola because uh, it, it has to breathe, to breathe. It's not always true. Most of the times it's not true. Why is the, sometimes they have to breathe. Sometimes they're ready to drink. You have to be, the, 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 the skill of the person who opens the bottle must be to understand the state in which this wine is. So if the wine... And you know the wine, and you know that this wine usually is aromatic, is open, is, is a certain character, and you don't feel that character, and you feel that it's closed, then, of course, uh, either you rack it or you leave it there a little bit to get to breathe, to get some air. So this air will contrast uh, the reductive effect and will bring out the original, uh, or, the, or not the original, the tertiary aromas, so the aromas that the wine has evolved in the bottle. But... It is not a thing that I can say that can apply to any museum. Yeah, of course. That's a gross generalization. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's good to know. Well, thank you for sharing um, the chat, your call with us. Jay, great, great thank you to uh, Jay. call today. Thank, thank you, you so to much. Thank you to Lika, to everybody. I'm very pleased. Thank you very much. Okay. Yeah, thank and you. Look at, yeah. Okay, Jay, sorry. That's it. Yeah, thank you to everybody, Marco, Stevie. This was, this was a lot of fun. Yeah, great. And hope to uh, meet you in person, Marco, at some point. And Jay, you got to come back when you're not busy being a lawyer and everything else. I, I just checked out your Insta. You're like, you are like a superhero. <laughs> Thank you. That's probably a little <laughs> bit too kind. Definitely going to get back to the Italy. And the Navy gives me some opportunities. I'm trying to get stationed in Italy, so I may be there. Oh, my God. That'll um, be yeah, so exciting. Be right. Exciting. So. Great. Okay, yep. listen. Thank you so much, everyone. And that is it. It's a wrap. See you next week. Ciao, ragazzi. Ciao. Ciao. We hope you enjoyed today's episode brought to you by the Wine to Wine Business Forum 2022. This year will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on November 7th and 8th, 2022 in Verona, Italy. Remember, the first early bird discount on tickets will be available until August 22nd. For more information, please visit us at winetowine.net.
guys, I'm Joy Livingston and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.